Welcome to And It's Writing, a live stream and podcast where two writers have a few drinks and some laughs while we revise our old work. I'm DC McNaughton, and currently I'm on vacation because I just finished a manuscript about three weeks ago. Well, it's kind of a vacation. It's more like a more like a cry-cation where I cry every few days because I'm worried about how my betas are doing reading my manuscript, and then I get some weird feedback, and I'm like, yeah! Um... <laughs> Um, it's mostly good feedback. It's fine. It's, everything's fine. It's all good. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Um, I am currently reading recipe books because I am spending all of my time, like either beta reading myself or I'm in the kitchen or I'm catching up on my art. And I just got a huge book today on French patisserie <laughs> by multiple authors. And I'm very excited. It's 700 pages of nothing but pastry. Cake and pastry. And that's all I got to say. Yeah. So I'm Avery Ames. I write adult fantasy. Uh, what I'm working on is I am doing some beta reading. Hmm. <laughs> and... mm, I wonder which beta it is. Um, and I am kind of rereading through Serenade to kind of refamiliarize myself with it uh, before we figure out when that's going to come out. I will let everybody know when I decide. And I'm working on a cover for it. Yes. So it's like we're like, it's like we're we're swapping back and forth. We're we're double teaming. <laughs> we're we're going for it. We're we're the two amigos. <laughs> Nobody likes us but us. That's okay. We have each other. Oh, what I'm reading is I am reading an advanced reader copy of a book by Ryan R. Campbell called Scam Bait. You'll be surprised. It is outside my normal genre. It is a contemporary. Um, and what it's doing very well is I love this author's voice. He has a very fun voice. I'm very picky about humor in books. And this one is one of the few that actually just like straight up makes me laugh out loud. It's great. Um, it comes out, I think, next month. Yes. No, later this month. It's not March anymore. Someone in chat says, I was just talking about Scambate five minutes ago. <laughs> I think this may be one of the other people that got an advanced reader copy. <laughs> cool people. Ah, <laughs> uh, you guys in your arcs. I'm not cool enough to read one of those. I could probably get you on a list. At least for this one. <laughs> <laughs> I could. I could. I know a guy. I know people. I know a guy. I can get you what you're looking for. The first taste is free. How much of it do you want? <laughs> okay, so... Uh, oh, wait, I was is... going to say what we're talking about. Oh, yeah, you gotta do that. So today we're talking about prose styles. Um, invisible prose, lyrical prose, and purple prose. I only know what one of those things are, so I can't wait for you to educate me. Good. <laughs> This is our usual reminder that writing is not all about rules. When we're writing, we sometimes need to break them as well. We are both firm believers that if rules feel too suffocating or overwhelming or stupid, <laughs> ignore them and yes. just write. Um, yeah, and so the drink. I made a purple drink. It's very pretty, and in real life, it is actually purple. I'm going to hold it up for the people who are watching us live, and it looks gray on my camera. Ew! It's really gross looking, but in real life, it's actually a very pretty purple. It's just my camera's white balance is real messed up. It is vodka, creme de violette to violet. I don't know how you say it, and lemon juice. Um, it's pretty simple. Violette. Um, so 
I don't know if that's right. I'm you know, that I I couldn't make that drink because I couldn't afford the liquor because I'm poor as fuck. I made my own. Uh, it looks kind of black. Uh, it's literally just UV blue and a spot of red food coloring. Cheater! <laughs> I am trash. I almost put purple food coloring in mine and just called it a day. I, you know, I tried to make it with with liquors, but uh, as I told you before we started the podcast, it turned gray and creamy and nasty. Oh. Uh, it was not great, so I ended up just going with food coloring because I am a creative and industrious individual. Resourceful. Resourceful. Okay, so further definition of what these three styles are, and there's actually kind of two definitions, so I'm going to go over both of them. Um, the first is a lot of people kind of consider it like a sliding scale to where invisible prose is where you just don't notice the words. You notice the story. The prose is a little more workmanlike. Um, it can be kind of pretty, but you're not noticing the words for the sake of the words. Lyrical is kind of in the middle where it's kind of pretty, um, but you're still paying attention to the story. And then purples where it's like you're paying more attention to the words than the story. And so that's kind of a scale. And the other definition is that there are three separate styles along those lines, whereas invisible strives to make the words unnoticeable. But lyrical is actually more like poetry. It uses literary devices. So like repetition, alliteration, iambic meter to make it sound more like poetry or a song. And then purple uses extra words for the sake of voice. So like lots of adjectives, metaphors and similes or longer and more obscure words. They're similar, but they are kind of a little bit two different schools of thought. They are totally different. I think I like, I personally agree with the second school of thought that they're three separate styles. I, I think I do too. So yeah, we're going to kind of discuss those three styles and how we use them, why you might want to use them. Are they good or are they objectively bad? Is there a time you might want to use purple prose, even though everybody says it's bad? Tune in here in a few minutes <laughs> <laughs> tune in while we make shame yeah. of ourselves and we did i did want to kind of mention i did a poll on our twitter um asking writers which style they preferred to write and lyrical won out with exactly half of the votes and then invisible had just a little over a quarter of the votes and then i wrote purple defense squad had 21 percent of the votes so people actually do like the purple pros <laughs> But only 21% of people. Only 21% of people. <laughs> I'm actually going to end up a little bit on this Purple Pros Defense Squad, but with some caveat. There's some asterisks in this. I did not see this poll because I do not check Twitter <laughs> enough. And when I do, it's typically to be full of myself instead of my podcast, which I should probably work on. Uh, but I am on Lyrical Team for sure. I personally am on Lyrical Team, but I do think there can be a case for Purple. And it is not just always objectively bad. I agree. Because it can be a voice choice. Later on, we'll kind of talk about some examples of some authors that do it well. But part of it is that how they affect reading speed. Invisible, you can read faster because generally, this is all generally speaking, because you're not stopping to pay attention to the words. You're just like, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and you're turning the pages. Whereas lyrical, it does make people kind of pause for a second and go, oh, that's really pretty. 
Um, and purple does take the longest because sometimes people have to decipher it. Oh my gosh. That's, that's just the worst. You know, I, I, you know, deciphering to a point, I mean, okay. If it's poetry, obviously, but I got some words. I can't wait to get there. Oh, you can do your words now. No, no, no. I'm going to wait. I'm going to, I'm going to edge a little bit here. I'm going to hold on to my words for just a minute. Make us, make us want the words. Yes, I'm going to make you desire them, and then I will blow your mind. I will <laughs> blow your fucking mind. <laughs> so part of that is, like, knowing your audience. What does your audience want? And that's going to just differ depending on who you want your ideal reader to be. And that can be anybody. But it is something to keep in mind when you're deciding which voice to use. And audience kind of goes along with genre. Because some genres lean one way or the other. You're not going to read a lot of like hard thrillers that are using purple prose. <laughs> no. FBI agent. You know, so-and-so. But they might use it sometimes. They might use it in sparingly. But not like yeah. excessively. <laughs> yes. But yeah. I, I, I see. I don't, I don't even read enough horror to make a statement on that. I was just talking to one of my partners about how I'm going to read Red Dragon and stuff soon. And I wish that I had that knowledge now because I feel like he might do it every once in a while for the character. But I don't know. I don't know if Hannibal Lecter has purple prose thoughts. I don't know if he does. (laughs) It would make sense. He's a very intellectual character. So I would imagine he might. But I guess we will find out because I've never read it. And at this point, I'm just talking out my ass. I don't know. Well, that's one thing to keep in mind is like your audience, but also your character. Um, if you're especially if you're in like first person and your character would be the type of person to go into purple prose, then it makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah, that's why I mentioned kind of in our little document here. Why is purple prose generally looked down upon? And we kind of talked about that is because sometimes you have to like stop and figure out what the author's trying to say. <laughs> you're like, wait, what actually happened? I got lost in like three layers of metaphor. And oh, he opened a door. <laughs> yeah. OK, I got that now. Let's go. I think that, and here's my words that I was edging on. I think that the issue with purple prose is when you like don't know when to fucking stop. Like, and you just keep going. And I'm just like, ah, oh, you know, I want to like, I want to wring your face out. Like, because like, why are you doing this to me? And the thing is, I think Charles Dickens, okay, he is dead, very dead. And who knows if people would publish his work now, but uh, he's a very, like, his words are just, super fun to read like there's nothing like reading his words and but i do feel like when it comes to dialogue and stuff or like little moments he does stop cuts it out mm-hmm. for just a minute but it's very purple and like i don't know there are people who do it well enough like robin hobb i feel like she has purple prose am i wrong to call it purple it, it edges into purple i actually would call dickens and you'll see this in a minute i would call dickens lyrical lyrical because he does the things that i talk about okay he repeats words the way he phrases things his meter so who is there are there any like yeah yeah i'm like i didn't know if uh, dickens wrote an iambic or anything like that i don't actually know um anything about that not specifically like in long passages but like here and there so are there any i don't read a lot of purple prose so are there any big authors out there who are writing 
purple? Yes. <laughs> I have, let me turn the document because I actually had this later. Ah, oh, yes, I have an entire document full of purple prose writers. The two that I had listed in our document are specifically Jacqueline Carey, who writes the Cushiel's Dart, Cushiel's Legacy series, is extremely purple. Like, just go look at the first page <laughs> of this book. You know, oh, I feel like you posted the first page in our writing group. I did. Recently, and I was like, ah, oh, all right. <laughs> and in this case, it it does let up. Like you said, it's it comes and goes. So when there is like action or like it, you get a breather from it, um, it starts off very purple and then eases up. But it makes sense because the character is raised in a culture that is very artistic. It, they are raised to appreciate and elaborate on beauty. It's very like almost like romanticism. And so it makes sense. Um, the other author is Anne Rice who's not, you know, completely contemporary. I haven't read any of her not Vampire Chronicles stuff. But especially in the first few Vampire Chronicles books, she would get really purple. But it made sense because her characters are like that. Right. I feel like it is, at least in Cushiel's Dart, the, the page that you shared with our, our group, and we sort of mentioned that, because I think that page is about eyes, somebody's eyes. Yeah. And that actually apparently comes into mm -hmm. the story. And so I feel like in, in a way that you can use purple prose to sort of help the reader find a target. Yeah. In a way, if that makes any sense. Um, and that's very, I don't know. If you like reading that sort of thing, it can be kind of mm -hmm. helpful. But I don't know. Yeah, it's like kind of pointing you in a certain I direction. Using the purple prose for like this section to talk about this thing. Um, one of the other, this is not modern in any way, shape, or form, but in The Hunchback of Notre Dame, there's a whole, like, opening chapter that's going over Notre Dame, and it's, like, talking about, like, all the windows and all the doors and, like, every part of the architecture, and it's very purple, but it's telling you this building is very important to this story. I know it's in the title, but it's also very important to the story. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, like, especially in, like, an intro where you're going real purple, it's like, no, this is going to be a big deal. So I'm going to play bad cop. <laughs> and I'm going to say, well, are you saying that people who write purple prose are freaking ridiculous? Because obviously Charles Dickens is the best writer <laughs> in the entire world, even though he's dead. And if people that are writing purple prose don't take care to pay attention to the lyricalness of it and the pentameter and the way that it feels on the page and the way that it bounces and the way that it sings um don't you think it's a little dumb <laughs> to write purple prose i think it's just like anything else it, it you need intention you need to know why you're doing the thing and if it's important to do the thing and if you're doing it just for the sake of doing it and it doesn't have like an actual purpose which is kind of what we're going to see here in a minute, <laughs> uh, then that's where you start getting lost is either when it gets so convoluted, your people don't know what you're talking about anymore, your readers, or it doesn't have a point. You're just doing it because you like adjectives. <laughs> that's when it's like, okay, okay, back down, back off a little bit, lay off the thesaurus, man. Because I've read those passages too, where you're like, you're using a lot of $10 words here and you're doing it just to prove you know them. 
it can be good it can be bad yeah. I think like a lot of other writing things it it's something a lot of people misuse all right all right <laughs> fine by the way i'm just being bad cop not because i have these opinions but because sometimes somebody's got to step in line and make sure that we are talking real talk here and not just fluffing up the entire writing environment <laughs> like everybody else does i want to know why people are writing fucking purple prose if it's not lyrical and wonderful and thought invoking at least for the, me like you're right that it, yeah. that is like an argument like when would you choose purple over lyrical um with our definitions of them being different things and i think it's it's rare that you want to use purple prose honestly it's one of those things where it's like okay like one percent of the time it works <laughs> I feel like the the few times that I've done it, it has been a character who's in love with another character. Yeah. And I use it as a means of, like, not saying that the character loves a person, but showing it, like, just from them just ogling <laughs> them for a whole page. And you're like, wow, there is definitely something wrong with you to be staring this hard and thinking this hard about it. And I also feel like Purple Prose in that sense works because it's fran a little mm -hmm. frantic. You're not trying to write a pretty book. You're writing frantic prose with big words to try to invoke a feeling of romance, at least in the very few occasions that I've written it. Um, sometimes I will also write it when I'm about to put, put a character in a scene that is going to be very important to the rest of the story. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to beef up what this, the second chapter of the book that I just gave you that you are currently baiting I use purple prose everywhere in there because like, it's like, no, this is a spot we're going to return to for the whole book. And you're going to read this and you're going to, you're going to remember it until the very last page so that I don't have to write more scenes in this setting because I don't want to. Yeah. No. Yeah. Part of it is that, yeah, you're talking about a thing that's important. And once again, you are using it to kind of control pacing because you were using it to make mm -hmm. the reader like slow down and pay attention to this part. Yeah. Okay, so that's kind of our general thoughts, but we also have some examples, so in case you're still a little iffy on, like, how it reads, um, I I had to find, I found public domain examples, and it was actually much harder to find invisible prose in public domain, and part of that is just because the way we speak has changed. So, like, what was invisible 200 years ago doesn't read as invisible now. <laughs> I also feel like one of the things that writers did, as you can see by all the old books behind <laughs> me, um, I've read a lot of old work and I feel like it was just in mm -hmm. to write purple prose. So a lot of people did it. I can't think about who wrote Invisible. Okay, you know what? There is that guy who wrote... That guy. <laughs> that guy. As if he's nobody. As I Lay Dying. As I Lay... Oh, it's, uh, it is William Faulkner. He wrote it. Um, his prose is not pretty at all. In fact, his storytelling is kind of <laughs> shit too. <laughs> but as I like dying is pretty classic. Um, but like it is very simple, like very, very simple. So I'm very curious to see who you brought to the table for invisible prose today, who we're gonna read. I will say it's a children's book because the phrasing was simpler. You know what? Sometimes William Faulkner writes like he's writing for a six-year-old, so that tracks. 
Okay, and what I'll do is I'll read the first one. I'll let you read the second one, and you'll find out why in a moment. And then I will read the third one. So The Invisible Prose is The Wonderful Wizard of Oz by L. Frank Baum. Oh. Um, this is the opening of, it may not be the very, very first chapter or first paragraph, but it's very close. So Dorothy lived in the midst of the great Kansas prairies with Uncle Henry, who was a farmer, and Aunt Em, who was the farmer's wife. Their house was small for the lumber to build it had to be carried by wagon many miles. There were four walls, a floor and a roof, which made one room. And this room contained a rusty looking cook stove, a cupboard for the dishes, a table, three or four chairs and the beds. Uncle Henry and Aunt Em had a big bed in one corner, and Dorothy a little bed in another corner. There was no garret at all, and no cellar except a small hole dug in the ground called a cyclone cellar, where the family could go in case one of those great whirlwinds arose, mighty enough to crush any building in its path. So we're describing a setting. Actually, all three of these, well, no, they're not. I was going to say, we're describing a setting in a way that's very, it's almost plain in its word choice. But it is laying the scene in a way that it paints it in your head so that you're not paying attention to the words. You're not going, oh, this is a really pretty word. You're just seeing the scene laid out. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. So that's kind of yep. what Invisible Prose looks like. Do we want to talk about the authors that also do this while we're sort of going through these? Or did you want to save them for the end because I noticed you have them on the end yeah. of our list, but I think maybe talking about other people who do this for people who want to write this yeah. way might be beneficial now if you're writing this way. And I will admit I am not as versed in invisible prose. It's not my personal favorite style. I think it it's it has its place and it's good. It's just not the thing that draws me to a book. But the one that I had listed was Brandon Sanderson. Oh yeah. 100% Brandon Sanderson does do that. And he does it really well, too. Yeah, he's very good at it. He tells you, yeah, I mean, okay. At least in the books that aren't um, uh, the, storm, a storm, the Stormlight Archive. Okay. Because I feel like he starts to get a little bit more wordy in those. But like Mistborn and that that those sort of books, yes. And also, I feel like in general, the big, uh, the, the writers who write like and get a you know, I'll sell a lot and write about two books a year. Like I haven't read any of these books, but I feel like the last time I opened a big author like that, it was very simple, like not bad. Oh, another one that writes invisible prose. Well, no, older books. Older Stephen King is invisible prose. The newer stuff, I think he starts to get a little, little more flowery. Stephen King is hit and miss. I, I, he he gets flowery in a couple of his older ones, but like I think that his debut, which was the one about uh, Carrie, that's invisible prose. I think. And like I said, I think a lot of like thrillers and like that style of book tend to be much yes. more invisible because yes. they just want you to follow the characters through the action. Um, a lot of urban fantasy yes. is more invisible for the same reason. Um, a lot of books that they want to be faster paced are invisible because they don't want you to slow down mm -hmm. and read the words. Like, pay attention to right. the words. <laughs> um, Gone Girl by mm. Gillian Flynn. That would so, make sense. Um, and yeah, it's just a, just keeps you going. You just keep going. So, yeah. No, I can... Those are good examples. Okay, so we're going to do Lyrical cool. next. So I'm going to scroll down. This Me? will be you. And it's your boy! It's my boy! It's Charles Dickies! Yes. And I'll tell you why I picked this specific <laughs> passage after you read it. Okay. <laughs> so this is from the Pickwick Papers, which I haven't read. 
Um, okay, here we go, Charles Dickies. All right. We write these words now, many miles distant from the spot at which, year after year, we met on that day, a merry and joyous circle. Many of the hearts that throbbed so gaily then have ceased to beat. Many of the looks that shone so brightly then have ceased to glow. The hands we grasped have grown cold. The eyes we sought have hid their luster in the grave. And yet the old house, the room, the merry voices and smiley faces, the jests, the laugh, the most minute and trivial circumstance connected with those happy meetings, crowd upon our mind at each recurrence of the season as if it, the last assemblage had been but yesterday. Ooh, very, very lyrical prose. Yes, and it's because I used it because it's a very clear example of the things we talked about is this repetition where it's like the hearts that throb so gaily then have ceased to be many of the looks that shone so brightly then have ceased to glow so he's using this like rhythm yes. and this repetition and like there's you know the merry voices and smiling faces the jest the laugh the most minute it's it's very much paying attention to the cadence of the words so that it almost feels like poetry yep and with a lot of charles dickens mr dickies <laughs> We have to go back and read it again sometimes so we can be like, what is he yeah. talking about? <laughs> it's so pretty, but what the hell is this guy talking about? Um, some people are very good at reading lyrical um, and can pick it up the first time. I've gotten better at it, uh, reading a lot of lyrical prose over the years. I think so. this one is relatively easy to follow. He does have some passages where you hit a moment where you're like, I have lost track. But I think this one makes, it's pretty easy to follow that it's like, you know, we, we used to have these yes. celebrations, which I think they're talking about Christmas, if I remember correctly. But that kind of, th yeah, we used to have. If it's a Dickens novel, they're usually <laughs> talking about Christmas. Good point. <laughs> Dickies loved him some Christmas, girl. He loves some Christmas time. Um. But yeah, it's talking about like, you know, looking back and at all, you know, seeing like nostalgia and it's pretty easy to follow in this mm -hmm. one. But like I with, I'm with you, sometimes you hit a point where you're like, I've lost the thread, but it's very pretty, but I've lost the thread. <laughs> I don't know what's happening. It's like you're high. I will... It's stoned reading <laughs> without the marijuana. It kind of is. If you want to feel stoned without doing drugs, just, just pick up some dickies, my boys. Um, I will say... <laughs> I've recently, um, I've recently started to like curate my bookshelf to the books that I will reread, ones that have emotional impact, and the ones that I will reread from my favorite authors. One of which is Purple, which is Jacqueline Carey, but the other three are lyrical. They are very lyrical, and that is why I love them. And they are, but there's V. E. Schwab, and Anna Marie Mclemore, and then Robin Hobb, which who drifts in between invisible and lyrical, depending. Um, but particularly V.E. Schwab and Anna-Marie McLemore are extremely lyrical. Um, McLemore might drift into purple a little bit, but especially V.E. Schwab likes, likes the lyrical prose, likes to pay attention to the cadence of the words and use very specific sensory language. I'm going to fight you. What makes Robin Hobb lyrical? When I was reading at least the first book, I, except for... Uh, reading the character the fool I felt like it was just purple um whereas when the fool spoke it was very lyrical which kind of set his voice apart from the rest of them that's probably that's probably what I'm leaning into because the so. fool is my favorite part of those books so that's the part I remember the most <laughs> okay yeah so I feel like Hobb does all of them depending 
Yes, I think she does. I think she really uses them to her advantage in storytelling. Oh, and you haven't read the Soldier Son trilogy, which is real weird. Anybody who's read any of the other Robin Hobb Realm of the Elderlings books and you're like, I'm going to read the Soldier Son books. Just know you were in for some weirdness. We're going to go full David Lynch. And that one has some lyrical because there's so much surrealism in them. There's very dreamlike sequences and those get pretty lyrical. It's got a different voice than the other books do. Now, <laughs> DC is going to do the thing where I point out an author who does lyrical so well and so wonderfully that he doesn't get anything done ever. <laughs> ever. <laughs> This and you know before I reveal before I reveal who this is. Oh, I know. Probably a lot of you already know just by how I've said it. You're right. Before I go into this, I I do want to say that like, oh, if you find yourself writing a book <laughs> and you're spending twelve fucking years writing it because you got to make sure that every sentence has like seven syllables or some such nonsense i want to tell you that maybe you should re <laughs> reconsider i didn't think of this one and i know exactly which one you're gonna say and you are 100 percent correct he is infamous for being lyrical because he takes so much very time pretty. our very own glorious patrick rothfuss who wrote name of the wind and the beautiful book that comes after it, and the beautiful short story that he wrote, novella, excuse me, that he wrote to sort of try to sate us over while he spent another decade writing the third book. Uh, he is amazing. Um, even though Avery doesn't really particularly, isn't par particularly fond of Name of the Wind because she doesn't like Kavoth, yeah. but I am a huge Kavoth fan, and I would... I, w I will say, I am a fan of the prose. He's so good. I do think he writes beautiful prose. It was a character problem for me, but his actual writing is amazing. Oh, guys, this is a, this is a, a lesson. He, reading his work and then getting involved in his work and then having to wait a decade to read more, if anything, um, is a lesson in uh what what happens when you let something rule you when you don't allow yourself to breathe and 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 be okay with something that's not necessarily perfect because he is a perfectionist as a writer um uh, he does many things uh with iambic pentameter um he does many things with syllables like he is so good at it and i remember like one time like in the, okay it is it has obviously been two thousand years since he wrote the second book <laughs> so i'm just gonna go ahead and spoil this for you there is a we'll just say spoiler alert right now back off if you want to it has been so fucking long you guys i am gonna spoil a little bit something for you there is a spot in the second book um of the king killer trilogy that he is with a fae that is weaving i believe it is a cloak of shadows i don't know or a I moon the cloak. Second one. <laughs> it is something really balls like it's baller and he the way he wrote it like was so the way that he wrote this fae spinning this cloak was so good that i cried i cried <laughs> and i was like 
That's so good. Like, I don't know how someone writes like this, but like, first of all, what the fuck? Second of all, where the fuck is my third book? I love you, but come on. And just like, if you really want to, if you're into fantasy and into characters who are bitter, jaded, super into themselves, little shits, uh, go ahead and pick up the Queen Chronicle and weep at this lyrical prose that Patrick Rothfuss has written and then weep at the fact that your third book <laughs> may never come. And this is not a, a slap in Patrick Rothfuss's face because he does have a lot going on. And we, we as readers, we cannot, we cannot imagine what his life is like. So this is definitely not a slight at him. I love him. I love his work. And I think y'all should go read it. I had to add that up. I will say my recommendation is and like i said it does lean a little into purple but it's very lyrical and it's an author and i know i know young adult is not really your thing you see i am very picky with my young adult and i love this and it's anna marie mclemore it's a series of standalones they're each kind of fairy tales they're not true fairy tales um they're kind of magical realism but there have been points where i've like read it and i've just had to like stop because i'm just like this is so fucking pretty i have to like take a moment because it's that like gotta calm down yeah it's like i'm never gonna i'm never gonna write like this and it's so beautiful my the one i would recommend most is blanca and groha it's a retelling of the swan princess and snow white and rose red kind of mashed together um in a slightly more contemporary setting i think it's like 1920s if i remember correctly it's been a while mm. since i've read it there's a couple passages in there where i just had to like take a moment <laughs> because it's so pretty um so that would be my recommendation so we have name of the wind and then anything by anna marie mclemore by the way all of these all of these will be in the, sh the show notes later purple purple prose i will read this one purple this is the classic purple prose it's from paul clifford by edward bullwood lighten bullwood lighten i don't bullwood lytton I don't know how you pronounce it. I didn't look it up before this. I probably should have. Um, but it's where we get the <laughs> phrase, it was a dark and stormy night. Um, there's actually a whole, like, worst opening lines contest oh, or goodness. award every year that's based on the dark and stormy night. By the way, I think it was a dark and stormy night is not that bad on its own. But we're going to read the whole passage. Yeah. Thank you. I feel so excited about this because I've never actually heard the whole passage. Yes. This is the opening lines you of the book. <sighs> It was a dark and stormy night. The rain fell in torrents, except at occasional intervals, when it was checked by a violent gust of wind which swept up the streets, for it is in London that our scene lies, rattling along the housetops and fiercely agitating the scanty flame of the lamps that struggled against the darkness. Hell yeah. Now the reason this is purple is because it's not really saying much with a lot of words. And this is why it's used as an example of purple prose. It's not actually one of those ones that's just like, waxing on about like you know some piece of jewelry for three pages but it is a lot of words that are just saying it was a dark and stormy night and we're in london and it's the kind where you do we were talking about how sometimes you lose your place you lose your place you get to the end of this and be like wait what did i read <laughs> but i mean to be fair in mr clifford's uh defense it does very much set a mood uh and that mood is deep dark and stormy yes i actually don't think this is the worst example of purple prose 
But once again, I was looking for public domain examples. It's iconic. It's iconic. I'm so glad you read this one. Honestly, the biggest example I would read would be from the opening phrase of Jack or the opening page of that Jack Carry book, which honestly we can read because it's educational and therefore we're educational and critical. Therefore, it is falls under should I forget what it's called? Can we do that? Yeah. Like for real? Yeah. One second. I'm going to scooch off to the side. Oh, for real? Yeah, I've got it right here. Are we going to? Oh. Boy, we're going to have to get our lawyer. <laughs> um, fair fair use. That's what it's called. Fair use. If, fair use. Oh, good. If you're critiquing something or using it for educational purposes, it's fair use. I have to get past the, wait, one, two, three, four pages of the Dramatis Personae. These books have a lot of people in them. <laughs> Okay, this is from Jacqueline Carey's Cushiel's Dark. Such a small thing on which to hinge such a fate. Nothing more than a moat, a fleck, a mere speck of color. If it had been any other hue, perhaps, it would have been a different story. My eyes, when they settled, were that color the poets called Bistra, a deep and lustrous darkness like a forest pool under the shade of ancient oaks. Outside Teradange, perhaps one might call it brown, but the language spoken outside our nation's bounds is a pitiful thing when it comes to describing beauty. Bistra, then, rich and liquid dark, save for the left eye, wherein the iris that ringed the black pupil a fleck of color shone, and it shone red, and indeed red is a poor word for the color it shone, scarlet call it, or crimson, redder than a rooster's wattles or the glazed apple in a pig's mouth. That is a lot of words to be like, my eyes are brown with a bit of red in them. <laughs> it makes sense for the character, but there are like five pages of this to start the book. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very um a very pretty version of my name is ebony darkness dementia raven way and i have black hair with purple at the tips it's like that but prettier <laughs> um uh, but uh, but christian start is kind of a big deal like it is you know people love this book and like i said it, it settles down it's it's the opening yeah. and then there are moments later but but for the most part it does it doesn't do this the whole book. And that's what I want to say about Purple Prose is I actually loved that reading it. I'm like, this is very pretty. It's very, it makes sense early in the book. It's settling me into the book. Um, but it's not going to be for everybody. Cause like I said, it's a lot of words to say one small thing. And that's kind of the gist of Purple Prose is it's going to be a lot of very pretty words to say something very simple. And if you're going to do that, you need to have a good reason for doing it. <laughs> <laughs> good. So if anybody has any questions, please feel free to ask. Um, and if they don't, I totally have something we can fill our time yes. with. What I was going to say is I'm looking at this list and I'm thinking as far as education goes for our writers who listen to this and i'm also doing kind of a i'm doing a beta read right now uh of a care of a of a ya um that has a family of eight children in it seven maybe and uh each of the children has a different voice and there's some children and this also goes for william faulkner's as i lay dying um some of the children for instance, have chapters that last only paragraphs um, or just a few lines. Uh, and it's this, it's that invisible, mm -hmm. it's that sort of invisible uh, writing style that we were talking about. But some of the characters have very, you know, a very creative 
purple um, perspective of the world. And you see that in the characters. So I guess what I urge you to do, like Robin Hobb, for instance, is use these um, styles to your advantage. If you're a person who finds yourself writing in just one way, um, I think sometimes this works with a... um, with probably a, a first person book where you just use one throughout the entire yeah. book. Um, Robin Hobbs is a first person, but her characters speak in sort of different writing styles. Uh, like the fool, for instance, some of her trilogies are third person with different okay. POVs. And the final trilogy is first. If I remember correctly, it's first person. I know there's multiple POVs in the final trilogy and I think it's first person as well. Okay. So it does shift. Yeah. You can use these to your advantage. You don't have to write in just one way. That's not going to count you out of the writer's pool. In fact, that's going to do you a lot of favors. I have some hangups that prevent me from being able to to read books with lots of characters, but I find that when the when they have a voice that's very different, it's very easy for me to remember all of them. And you could use this to your advantage, actually, if you're writing a book that has a, a big cast. Uh, to do something like this. I will say another example that's similar to what you mentioned is um, Spending Silver. Yes! Spending Silver has multiple POVs, all first person, and each one has a very distinct voice to the point where most multi-POV books, when you read them, will tell you at the beginning of the chapter who's speaking, especially if it's first person. Spending Silver does not. It gives you like one sentence to orient yourself and figure out who's speaking based on how they're speaking. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it's it's a masterclass in varying voice between characters, if you're ever interested in that. It's a masterclass that I have a hard time following. It's a very good book, but it's a it's a learning curve. There's a learning curve to it. A real a real learning curve. There really is. Like, yeah, you have to kind of like get the hang of all the characters and it's it's mm-hmm. a lot. But yeah, we have a note in chat. It says, I had an idea once for switching from British to American spellings for this one chapter from an American's POV. Interesting. I like that. Fun. No, that's that's super fun. I think that's really cool. I feel like there are people who would kind of bitch about it, <laughs> but like those people suck. I love it because it's it's a voice thing, but it's also a reading thing. Um, which I guess you could do in an audiobook by just having a narrator who is British and a narrator who is American. Um, but when you're reading it, that would be a really nice, subtle way to differentiate your characters um, in voice. Yeah. I was just that's kind of what this all comes down to is voice, um, which is probably a topic we could talk a lot about on another day. But all of these, what it boils down to is the voice and the pacing of your book. That's, mm-hmm. that's yep. think about what you want and do that thing. I had a book that uh, the, the 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 book that I wrote before the one that I just handed out to Beta is I had a character who spoke in alliterations a lot even when they were narrating. I loved and it. And then, <laughs> yeah, it, it got some pretty interesting reception. And uh, and then about three quarters of the way in, he becomes omniscient, and his voice of the character becomes omniscient, and and instead of having his own voice, he's sort of speaking as the whole world, and like it. I lose the alliterations and um, and I start being a little bit more purple because the, the world is a big yeah. thing. And then I sort of kind of cut back from that um, because I didn't want it to be overwhelming and I sort of get back to lyrical. But uh, again, the 
the alliterations only happen when he's actually speaking in dialogue. Um, I get rid of them for the most part after the third, um, after three quarters in, um, just to indicate that something about the character has changed. And I don't know. I really liked it. It was a lot of fun. And it's that something like that. And, and, you know, writing, switching from British to American spellings, like it's that kind of sort of fun thing that's like, oh, that's really unique and exciting. And I love that kind of stuff. Yeah. And as a reader, I would be reading that and I would pick up on it and be like, this is really cool. <laughs> yeah. It makes you excited. Um, like, I was going to say one final thing, if we don't have any other questions, is I am curious for both of us to tell the other one how we think the other one falls more often. Because <laughs> I think... I think you are a very good chameleon. Like in that you switch. I don't think you lean oh. into purple that often. It's very sparingly, but I think the invisible and the lyrical for you, you do both in a very conscientious way, depending on your character. Thank you. Because <laughs> I've read both from you. I've read very invisible prose and I've read very lyrical prose and I've read both in the same book. Yay. I've done it. You did it. And so can you. Um, <laughs> if I were going to say what you are, I would probably say that the thing is, is you used to be very purple. But I, I noticed as you've grown as a writer that you've started to slip more into lyrical a little bit. Like you're starting to use like just um, the beats of stuff to your advantage. And instead of just writing just purple, you're you're kind of mixing the purple with the lyrical. You're sort of losing some of the over descript and turning it into something that's bouncier to read um i don't think very often you slip into invisible prose um i think you kind of stay away from that um unless you're in heavy dialogue which makes sense because um, i read less yeah. of it but that's how it's coming across to me but like I'm actually pretty new to this idea of, I didn't actually know the, I didn't actually, I've never heard of invisible prose and I, I knew about lyrical, but only in my own head. Like I knew that that sort of prose existed, but I didn't actually know there was a split between the three worlds, like, and that people actually categorize them. That's something that I just learned today. So this is just me with my very rudimentary knowledge <laughs> of these, these things that you've just educated me. With. I will say. If I am doing this successfully and slipping more into lyrical rather than purple for the sake of purple, it is because of something you have encouraged me to do, which is to read my damn book to myself out loud. <laughs> and I hate it. Have you started to do that? I hate it, but I, uh... I do it and it sucks because... I don't know. Something about saying my own words out loud is very embarrassing to me, even if I'm the only one in the room. But it does help people. It does help you learn the cadence of your words and realize when you're using too many words and when when you're losing the point. Because when I was reading this purple prose, I hit a point where I was like, I'm I've lost where I'm at in this sentence. It's you know, it, it's it's hard to do it first. But if you start reading to yourself all the time, then it becomes easier. And boy, it becomes very advantageous. And I think that I think it does kind of lend itself to lyrical prose because it's the natural cadence in the way you talk. It's like it's just the way it feels rolling off your tongue. And hey, you're anybody who reads your audiobook in a year, two years, three years from now is going to thank you like crazy <laughs> for reading your book out loud because you've done the one thing that now they don't have to like worry about it while they're trying to read because i've heard horror stories about people who read audiobooks and then it's like whoa this is so weird out loud and 
it's just a whole thing and they have to like call the author and be like uh yeah i'm reading your audiobook and like i do this can i make this tweak and and then the writer has to be like uh better not or yeah go ahead um and i think so i think invisible prose also reads very cleanly um i think reading out loud is where you're going to learn either just small hiccups where like a sentence is weird or you're going to start realizing when things are too purple um but yeah, yeah it will it will kind of help you differentiate between the three reading out loud um because you're going to notice how much you notice the actual words. Yeah. Yep, I agree. Nothing else to say. Yeah, I think that's all my thoughts. We're a little in, ending a little early, but I yeah, think we that's are. That, you know what that's all yeah. right. I have another the conclusion says any other final thoughts, jokes etc and i'm like i don't have any good jokes etc i don't have any good writing jokes oh i do have one tip uh-huh. i do have a tip so um if you find yourself writing in one type and you sort of feel like it's losing luster for you chances are you're reading a lot of work that mm-hmm. is exactly what you're doing and i urge you to sort of go outside of the box Um, One of the things I do when I feel like my vocabulary or just the way that I'm writing becomes too, like, too boring for even me, because part of being a writer is entertaining ourselves. Um, You know, I reach out to something, a book, and I start reading something that is completely different than what I'm working on. I, I I used to tell people, if you get bored or you feel like your vocabulary needs a good stretch out, read H.P. Lovecraft. (laughs) absolutely terrible i believe he was a terrible person from what i've read i don't know that he was a pretty awful person pretty awful person starving to death poor lad uh but um he has an extraordinary vocabulary and an extraordinary way of writing and although i never liked it personally it always took me out of my own head like when i was feeling like my my writing was sort of falling short i was stuck in my own head i wasn't surprising myself i would literally open the necronomicon and just start reading like because he writes short stories and novellas nothing big and you can just take 10 minutes with it and just be like what the fuck just happened to me (laughs) like and then like you kind of walk away with you know something like that and then i sort of put lovecraft down for a while and and now i do it with dickens because i i enjoy dickens way more than mr dickies more than i enjoy Mr. Lovecraft, um, but to each their own, you know, and finding an author that surprises you um, with everything that they do is a great way to sort of get out of your own head, explore a writing style you've never done. And I recommend it. I think now that we've had this conversation, I'm like, I need to read more Invisible. And our conversation made me go, I do like a thriller, so I should read more thrillers. So I should give them a a try. Um, We have a comment in chat. I used to read a lot of Anthony... Oh, I'm going to mispronounce this. It sounds like Trollop is what it looks like, but there's a P-E. Who is that? But saying Trollop sounds bad. (laughs) An English novelist. Okay, so he's he's another dead guy. Okay. (laughs) A Victorian dead guy. Cool. Cool. I'll have to look into that. I'll have to see. I like some Victorian. I don't think I have any of his books. I like some good Victorian, some good Regency, kind of just to get a different feel for different voice. Um, Some romanticism. Can also introduce you to like if you're re- if you're writing books that take place on Earth and you read these older books, 
um, it can really teach you a thing or two um, because they lived in a completely different world than us, these dead yeah. guys. And uh, you can learn a lot from them. Chat says Trollope was the guy who taught me that your third person omniscient narrator is also a character, which is true. If you're doing like a third person huh. omniscient, you can treat them as like a separate character, especially in like kind of a fairy tale style um, is really and, and also the kind of an older style, especially if you have the narrator like add a little commentary on <laughs> then they start to feel like another character so i may have to look into that because that's going to be some interesting voice yeah that's interesting there's a very few omniscient writers that i can cling on yeah to. omniscient is very hard i think to mr dickie's world some omniscient <laughs> sweet yeah dickens does do a very omniscient the trollop adds a lot of commentary says the chat lot is in capital letters <laughs> a lot of commentary a lot okay so i think that's pretty much everything we're at our time so yes uh our next episode is on april 15th and will be a <laughs> clunky prose extravaganza dissecting and revising one of avery's old online role-playing posts combining all the craft topics we've discussed so far <laughs> it bad i didn't it's so bad. Usually I read one of my old pieces of writing and go, ah, this shows, you know, X writing topic. Like, this is really bad sentence structure. This is really bad dialogue tags. This one, I was just like, everything is wrong. We are going to go at this. So it's going to be fun. <laughs> I'm going to make DC cry trying to edit this piece of shit. I can't wait. It's been a long time yeah. since we've edited something. And I'm ready to dig my <laughs> nails and teeth in. Oh, it's, it, it, yeah, it's on. So anyways, yeah, you can find everything you need about the podcast at anditswriting.com. Look us up on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Podcatchers, wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter at anditswriting for episode updates, notifications. Um, if you like what you're hearing. Tell your friends. Yes, tell your friends, please. We, we, we. we Tell your friends about us. We are about to get some pretty cool we guests are. on here, and we want a lot of people around to appreciate them. But we have some cool things are happening. Top secret news we can't share yet. It's top secret. It's publishing tradition to have news we can't share. Even though those rules are self-imposed. They are. We can't share it. It's, it's secret. Top we're secret. We're not telling yes. anybody. We're not telling anybody. Tell your friends we're going to be but awesome. Yeah, you can join our Discord group and maybe you'll get some information a little ahead of time. Maybe. Um, check out maybe. the website for details on where <laughs> to find that, the Discord group. And we would really, really appreciate it if you left us a rating on iTunes or Spotify. That helps people find us and it makes us feel better about ourselves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Please feed our egos. Please. Um, yeah. So thank you so much for joining us and we will see you again in a couple weeks. Mm -hmm.